now you're going to bring it up and, and just put salt on the wound? Will you stop yelling at me? No! Live in the entertainment capital of the world. No, no, you're making me nervous, but seriously. It's the T.C. Martin Show. No, listen. Uh, you're making me nervous. Diagnosis. Oh, and a foul. Prognosis. Well, that's good. Osmosis. And they'll reset. Nowitzki again for the lead. It's the doctor, T.C. Martin. Hour number two of the program. Glad to have you here on this Wednesday. We've got some NBA talk. Playoff game tonight between the Milwaukee Bucks. Taking on the Atlanta Hawks. Game number one of that uh, series. And then uh, last night, we will talk about what happened with the Phoenix Suns and the LA Clippers. What a crazy game that was. Scott Spritzer will join us uh, at the bottom of the hour. So hang tight uh, for that. Always good here on a Wednesday. T.C. Martin, Ballpark Frank with you. Can game number one between the Bucks and the Hawks live up to what we saw last night? That is a question. Well, we didn't see it because you and I were at the hockey game. But we saw the following. highlights of it. Yeah. But, and I uh, saw you post uh, the, the end of the game. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Because that, that was a crazy ending. Uh, but right now, you know, we thought we would get our other good friend on. That's right. Haley from New York. The internationally boxing Hall of Fame trainer himself and very good friend. We're talking about the one and only Teddy Atlas. Teddy, what's going on, my man? Just uh, trying to help you out, do a little talk for you. (laughs) We saw you on the Mike Tyson knockout documentary that was on ABC. And then now we're seeing uh, the the Kings on Showtime. Fantastic. You're all over these things. And uh, again, a lot of legends that you've been involved with. You know, take us uh, through this. Let's let's start with the Showtime documentary on uh, how that all came about. And give us your thoughts about it. The golden years of boxing is the 30s, the 40s, where you had fighters you're never going to see again with 300 fights. I mean, the times are different. <laughs> the landscape is different. You're never going to see a fighter with 300 fights like Archie Moore or Henry Armstrong. You know, 120, 110 knockouts. You never. I mean, that's over. But uh, back in those days, not only did they have that many fights, but there were that many great fighters, and they were all fighting each other. And then, you know, you didn't always have that again. And then all of a sudden, you get the 80s, where you got network television, number one. You got great talent, number two. I mean, just tremendous fighters. And you got them fighting each other. I mean, that doesn't happen anymore. The, you know, it doesn't happen with any of these. You got four or five power, well, really, three or four power brokers in boxing. Let's be honest. And yeah. they have their little piece of land, and uh, they they protect it. And they have their sugar daddy. Their sugar daddy is the network, you know, that takes that allows them to do that. And they go out there and they they protect their fighters. They keep undefeated fighters so they can draw you in. They can draw the fans in. Uh, but they don't consistently put on great fights. You know, they protect their guys. They won't let them go across the street to make the great fight. You know, whether it's Spence and Crawford or, you know, whether it's some of the lightweights. you got some great lightweight fights that could be made. Uh, most of them are never going to be made because... They're not going to go and allow them to fight, you know, under the banner or, you know, in a co-promotion of two banners with the other fighter. They want to control the whole thing so they can control the money. They can control, you know, at the end of the day, they can't lose because the guy they're fighting, they have 
uh, options on. They have control over. So either way, they can't lose. And they want to give it that way. They don't care about the the fans. They don't care about the, the, the sport in that kind of way. They just care about, you know, keeping their power base and, you know, making sure that they don't jeopardize that. Every once in a while you get thrown a bone, but, you know, you're not going to get people who say, well, you know, thank God we got the uh, – well, they don't say that after it happened, to be honest. But mm-hmm. at the beginning they said, thank God we got Pacquiao Mayweather. First of all, it was five years too late. People realized that, so they were very disappointed. But you only got it because the it became a impossible fight not to make because of the money, the universe of money. I mean, that is, you know, it was one of those – Crazy one in a million, one in a billion. If you want, you probably had a better chance of hitting lottery than of ever believing that there would be a fight where you know one guy could walk away with over two hundred million and another guy could walk away with over a hundred million. Yeah, you never thought that was possible. And when it happened, the different networks, the different promoters had to get together uh, for that one. But the rest of them, no. And the eighties was different. It's a reminder of when. Boxing was, again, as great as it's supposed to always be, where you had the best fighters fighting each other. And, of course, you had the bonus. You didn't have pay-per-views. You didn't have it, you know, you didn't have it on uh, one or two was on closed circuit. But for the most part, they were on network TV. And, again, you had great special fighters fighting each other. You had Hearns. You had Leonard. You had Heigler. You had Duran. Oh my God! It was, and then that's you know that's why the documentary was made to go back and and take a glance at when it was still good and more than good when it was great. Yeah, absolutely. Teddy Atlas joins us. Let's go back to the seventies and eighties, like you're talking about, and with his four kings. And you mentioned Leonard Hagler, Duran, fantastic. But really, back in those days. You know, it was Bob Arum, top rank, and Don King, really. I mean, you had some other promoters, but even though people made a big deal about those guys like not wanting to work with each other, they still were able to make fights, and they did work with each other, right? We actually got the, the big fights and the better fights, right? <laughs> they, we did get the best fighters fighting each other. Look, some of them were free agents. You know, some of them were free agents where they, uh, Sugar Ray Leonard was a free agent. You got to remember that. They weren't all tied up with Aaron McKinney. So, you know, and you could, you know, they could go across the street and just make the fight. And and the sport benefited from it, and the fans benefited from it. And it, it, now it's, you got a lot of fans running for the gates. I hate to say it. This sport's my whole life. My whole life. Yep. But I hate to say it, but the truth is the truth. UFC has bypassed. I never thought this would happen. Never. I mean, we talk about it on my podcast, but I never thought UFC would surpass boxing with the numbers. Now, look, when it comes to the big cable network that's got, you know, they got in a built-in audience, and you put on a big fight, you know, if you put on, if you put, if you put on Joshua and Fury or, or Canelo with somebody big, of course, that universe with boxing is always going to be better. It's always going to be bigger, but. On a daily basis, on a weekly basis, when you're putting on the fights that these networks are putting on week to week, you know, month in, month out, UFC has bypassed those numbers by far. You know why? Because they put competitive fights on. They put fights where it's not A against B. 
They they put fights where either guy can win, and you get great fights. And that's why they're doing great numbers. And that's why that brand of UFC has grown to the point that it's grown. And look, there's a reason for it. They got an advantage. You know, how many years, 25 years I was with ESPN, screaming, getting in trouble, getting suspended sometimes, but doing what I thought was best for the sport, screaming, saying, hey, we need a national commission, okay? There's too much corruption in the sport. Anything else, we don't even have time to go over it. But we need a national commission like the other sports have, baseball, football, basketball, uh, but we don't. But the one thing about the UFC, they might not have a national commission, but they got a dictator. And... And what that means is, you know, it's not a guy going out there and, you know, shooting people and having them in a firing squad. There's a dictator that it's his way and the highway. But it's a dictator that is going to make sure that the standard for his sport, yeah, his sport, for his business, is going to be what it needs to be to continue to make the business, the business, the whole business thrive. Hmm. Not, not just a couple of fighters, but the whole business thrived because that's that's what he's about because he's part of that business so he makes sure that every week there's good fights he doesn't have these fights that you see when you put a ESPN on you know too often or if you put it's not just them you put BBC you know where they're all fighting in house all in house right. it's, it's like musical chance like after a while it's like stop will you stop it I mean it's ridiculous you know with all of them the, the zone, or whoever you want to mention, where they're all, for the most part, they're all protected. It's like the protective business. and But you go, there's nobody freaking protected at UFC. <laughs> oh, my God. There's nobody. I like to call it the umbrella business, Teddy, because they're fighting underneath their own umbrella. That's all it is. The umbrella business of boxing all right now. All it is is there's one guy in charge. Yeah. And he's saying, we're doing what's best for the sport. Right. That's it. It's not complicated. That's the formula. We're doing not what's best for, for you and for you. What's best for the sport? At the end of the day, what's best for the, for the sport is best for the fans. That's what we're doing. You mentioned UFC and you mentioned the other organizations in boxing that have the umbrella thing. How crazy does it make you in this day and age that now we see kind of a three-ring circus aspect of it where you have things like the Paul brothers fighting and Mayweather fighting a Paul brother, and guys that really aren't even boxers at all, and all of a sudden they're not only getting in boxing matches or so-called boxing matches, but they're on pay-per-view events. Listen, that's a byproduct of what's going on. Maybe, maybe part of it is because people can't see Spencer Crawford, they can't get those second fights, so they they go to something else. But it's also it's it's a new audience. It's a young audience. Uh, it's a new audience. It's a YouTube audience where these guys built up a huge space, and now they find a way to profit from it in a different way in the ring. And there's an audience for it. Uh, it's entertainment. You know, you call it carnival, call it circus, call it the Jerry Springer show. Not because Jerry Springer show was a carnival, but you know what? People were watching it. You know, they wanted to see crazy, extreme things. And people don't have a big attention span, if you haven't noticed. So, you know, you get their attention quick. And you get it where, hey, a YouTuber's fighting the greatest fight of all time. They forget he's not the greatest fight of all time. I love Mayweather. No one loves him and respects him better than me. But at 44 and hadn't fought for four years, that's not Mayweather. 
That's not Mayweather anymore. It's a different version, different guy. And so, but they don't think about that. Because Bonham and Bailey was right, the great promoter. This is sucker born every two minutes. You could bring people in. And I don't mean to insult people's intelligence, but you know what? Sometimes maybe it should be insulted a little bit because you can bring people into the tent. Yeah, you can ring that bell and and get them to come and say, hey, wow, you're going to say a YouTube, he's going to beat the best fight in the world. Oh, really? Oh, wow. Yeah, I got to see this. So, you know, if, if Marvel Comics puts on another Spider-Man show, uh, movie, guess what? It's going to do good again. There's 150 of them, but they're going to keep doing good. People want entertainment. They want their imagination to, you know, to be taken care of. And that's one way to feed the imagination. Mm-hmm. And there's one other thing, and it's a phenomenon, and I give them credit for it, where it's kind of like the movie The Matrix, where they unplugged it, and they made it real, where they took these YouTubers that, that have their life on YouTube, and now one of their guys, one of their own, <laughs> wow, He's on TV fighting real fights. So that means we're there, too, with them because they're part of it. It's their guy. Just like they were with them with the YouTube stuff. Hey, my YouTube stuff now, I'm not playing games on YouTube now, pushing buttons. I'm actually now in a ring where it went, it went from alternate reality, alternative reality, to real. Like, it's real. Like, my YouTube is in a ring fighting someone where we used to fight on those games with Mayweather. Now we're fighting with flesh and blood. For real. Hmm. So <laughs> they, they were very smart to be able to take this and to exploit it. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's the American way. I don't knock anyone. It's the American way. You're not hurting anybody. You go out there and make money. It's the American way. And you know what? Credit to them. That's what they're doing. And as far as the money Mayweather's making, let them make a zillion more. Because for me, any fighters, any fighters that put it on the line, that go into that ring, and like I've said for years, and I'm, I said it for years, every time you go, and you heard me on ESPN, every time you get in the ring, there's a chance you get out of that ring with less of yourself. So anytime, any money these guys can make, after risking themselves, Floyd's been a pro fighter for over 20 years, after risking yourself all those years getting in that ring, you, you make as much as you can, brother. And I'm with you. There he is, the legend, Teddy Atlas. He's got a great podcast as well, The Fight with Teddy Atlas, the podcast. We talk about the four kings on Showtime. Check that out. Teddy, real quick, I, I do want to talk to you about you know, the knockout with the Mike Tyson story. You were fantastic in that. And let me ask you, because I know we have talked about this a little bit in the past, and I just get the feeling, correct me if I'm wrong, sometimes you maybe you don't like to talk ab- about Mike Tyson because of the, the, the nature of your relationship and what happened, and that was diagnosed uh, in, in, uh, in the story. Is, is that difficult to go back and, and think about that? And how do you feel about Mike Tyson today? I was a little luck in the world, and I'm happy. I think he's in a good place, and I hope to God that he is. Um, and I'm happy for him that he's reinvented himself, that he's been able to come back, not only financially, but uh, to come back humanly, you know, to get to a place where, because that's what it's about. That's what success is about. It's not about money. It's about being happy and being satisfied with who you are. And I think maybe he's at that place now. It seems like he is. And I'm happy for him. I'm, I'm, I'm happy for him. And I hope he stays in that place. Uh, and he continues to thrive uh, in, in those ways. 
All right. Uh, before we let you go, Teddy, we talked about you know some of these fights, and again, it's different. Is there a fight out there that you're really looking forward to seeing? Is it Fury Wilder three? Is it Spence Pacquiao? Uh, what are you looking forward to seeing the most, if anything, here this summer or this fall? It's not Spence Pacquiao. I love both of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, I love the style of Spence. I love the dedication of Spence, the relentlessness, the attitude of Spence. Um, you know everything about him. And Pacquiao is an icon. There's not a million icons out there. Uh, and, and I love the person and the human he is. The human being is helping all those people in, in, in the Philippines and being just being a source of inspiration. Very few people get a chance to be that. Very few. And it's a privilege if you do. You know, you think it's a privilege to be able to punch hard and move fast and have good light work and big things. It's a privilege to also, even more so, to be able to help people. And Pacquiao does that. He does not just being Pacquiao, besides what else he does, giving away things and helping. But just being Pacquiao, he gives hope to people that come from some real serious poverty in all different places like we do in this country. But in the Philippines, there's plenty of it. And he gives people hope. And if he can do it, they can do it. So you got two great guys in there. The only thing I don't like about it, you know, at this point in Pacquiao's life and his career, over 40 years old. I know he's been pulling the rabbit out of the hat. I know he's, I know he's been shocking everyone. He beat Thurman. You know, he's not supposed to do that. A young guy, a guy who's really good. He might have caught him at the right time because Thurman had been off for over two years, and then he had one fight back. He looked horrible, and then he got back here. But it doesn't matter. He still beat him. He beat a guy that he, he wasn't supposed to beat at this point in his life. But now he's even older. Now he's even more inactive. And, you know, he's fighting... A real big welterweight. I mean, don't forget, Pacquiao, when he started, he was like 105 pounds. <laughs> and now he's grown all the way up to this. So he's, it's not like he's ever was a natural welterweight. And now he's fighting not only a natural welterweight, but he's a guy that's huge. And relentless, as I said, good good body punches. You know, he goes to the head, the body, uh, punches well. You know, he, he also can fight inside, outside. Got a great jab to set everything up. I just, I hate to see guys stay too long. It broke my heart to see when I watched the films of Joe Lewis fight Marciano. Oh, listen, Marciano was great, but that wasn't Joe Lewis in the ring anymore with them. And then Muhammad Ali with Holmes. And that wasn't, that wasn't Muhammad Ali. And to, just to see these guys stay too long, it's sad. I, I, it, it's, it's sad. And to think that there'd be some. Young people out there, that that'll be the only part of the legacy they know. They won't know the other part. It, I, it, I'm just concerned that that could happen. That we could be talking about, yeah, Pacquiao stayed too long yeah. uh, because this is the kind of style, this is the kind of man, this is the kind of fight that when it gets in the real shadowy parts of your life, the real twilight of your life, this is the kind of guy in Spence. There can be real problems. And, you know, maybe, he'll, again, he'll pull rapid out of the hat. Pacquiao is so special. Maybe he will. But I'm not so sure. And I'm just worried it will be the fight that he will go out with at the end. And it might not be the fight that we would have liked to really see. And we look forward to that fight coming here in August in Las Vegas. You talk about Manny Pacquiao doing so much good and give. Teddy Atlas, you do it as well, too. And I, I always like to mention this when I have you on. I appreciate it. And uh, the Dr. Theodore 
Atlas Foundation is your baby. You've done fantastic stuff uh, with people there in New York and, and, and everywhere else. And, and I always like to have you plug that because it is fantastic, my friend, because talk about giving back. That's what you do. Hey, I appreciate it. Listen, 25 years we've been doing it. It's a foundation to remember a good man. He was my father, yep. but he was a man that took care of people. That you know, he he did house calls for free till he was eighty years old. That's all you need to know. He built a hospital that had twenty two beds. He built that had twenty two beds in it way way back for one reason, so people could get proper hospital care that couldn't afford it. And he absorbed the cost. And he did it for fifty five years. He took care of people, and he lived that way. So you know, I started a foundation to remember in the spirit that he lived and. You know, we'd never be near what he was, but we take care of people. We take care of the people that fall through the cracks. You know, if a family needs to have their child, they don't have the proper insurance. They need special surgery, but, but it's not paid for by insurance, which it's a lot in this country. You know, people, a lot of people don't realize there's doctors that do not accept insurance. There are. And they do specialized surgery that sometimes a kid needs that kind of special surgery. So... When that happens and they have nowhere to go, we step in. And quietly, you know, we're, we're going, we're paying for the surgery um, for that. Or we'll fly a kid out of state where they get the treatment program that might not be available in their area. Uh, and they got to fly out. So we'll fly them out. We'll fly their parents out. You know, we'll put handicap ramps up. Uh, you know, we take care of the people that, as I said, that need to be taken care of that have nowhere else to go. And we also do social programs where we go into these at-risk schools in New York. They're called Title I schools, where it's families making less than 35000 a year. So you talk about real poverty. And quite frankly, what goes along with that, you're talking about North Shores for the most part. So we go into the schools with these kids, and these kids are lost. I mean, they're angry, they're lost, they're, you know, and... Um, we go in there, and I don't talk. I'm not going to lie. I, we don't talk studies. And, and listen, some of these kids, they, they can't read. They can't. They, they, they fail math. Uh, and and they're, they're getting, they're not getting younger. They're, they're, they're only getting older. They're going further and further ahead in school without knowing how to read, without knowing how to do basic things, um, because they don't care to. Not because they're dumb. They don't care to. They don't care anymore. So what we do is I don't go in there and start preaching about, hey, you got to do better math. You got, of course I want to do better. No, of course. But that's not where it's at with these kids. I go in there and I just say, hey, listen, I know you've got problems. I'm, I'm not disputing that. I'm not here to talk about that right now. I'm here to talk about what you can do. I know there's certain things that feel like it's out of your control and, you know, how you feel, whether it's a situation at home, whatever the hell it is. But I'm here to talk about what you can do. And that is, you got the power. It's the greatest power in the world. You got the power to make a choice of who you are, how you behave every day. That's what I'm here for. That's all I'm here for. Nothing else. I'm here to say, hey, if you guys start to decide to do something that a while ago you started you stop doing. Care about who you are. Take ownership over who you are. Take responsibility over who you are. Care every day you walk in this school how you're going to act, how you're going to represent yourself, how you're going to behave. If you do that, that's all I'm asking you to do. If you start doing that, you're going to get put on a list with your teachers. 
that you improved in those areas with your behavior. And I'm going to come back here at the end of this semester. I'm going to drop off 200 tickets to a Yankee game, to a Mets game, to a Knicks game, to a Nets game, whatever it is. And I'm going to supply the buses. And if you're on that list, you're going to go to a game. All right? Because I, I just want you to have a little reason to care about who the hell you are. Well put, Teddy Atlas, a, a, a great guy, a great friend. We appreciate you, man. And with Raider ties, let's don't forget that. When you come to Vegas, you're coming to see your Raiders, right? There you go. I was just, yeah, yeah. my son, of course, right. the assistant director, yep. scouting with the Las Vegas Raiders. And, um, you know, I was just out there a couple of weeks ago with my family to see my son, see my grandson, see my daughter-in-law. Uh, it was great. We were there for a week. It wasn't long enough, but he's coming here Saturday. You know, the NFL, they get one vacation. That's all, baby. I know. One vacation. Before training camp. That's it. Yeah. In the NFL. Yeah. And he's coming home next. He's coming home Saturday for three weeks. We're so happy he's going to be with us, with his son, with his wife. Um, we're going to get out there. We're probably going to. Well, it's looking like we're going to be out there for the first game. Great. Good. Okay. We'll look forward to seeing you, man. That's, that's fantastic. All right, Teddy. Appreciate the time as always, my man. Excellent stuff. And check out the fight with Teddy Atlas, the podcast. Uh, it, it's fantastic. Uh, and who, I know you had Charlo Munguia. You talked about Inouye, the Wilder Fury press conference. Uh, what do you got coming up real quick? Yeah, you, listen, that's what we did. We covered everything that was on uh, in boxing this past weekend. Everything. What you just said and more. We covered it all. But what we got coming out tomorrow is an interview with the new UFC champion, the new UFC flyweight champion, the first Mexican-born MMA champion ever, Brandon Marino. And it's a great interview. It's 45 minutes long. It's coming out tomorrow. And I think that if you're, first of all, if you're a UFC fan, you're going to love it. And if you're a fight fan, period, I think you're going to love his story. I call him the, the Mexican Rocky. <laughs> because he had that kind of story, and and he made it. When when it looked like he couldn't make it, he just kept going, kept going, and he made it. So I, th- I think people will enjoy it. Excellent stuff, Teddy. All right, brother. Appreciate the time as always, man. Be good and look forward to seeing you soon. Take care. All nice right, talking to you. There he is, Teddy Atlas. Uh, love him to death. International Boxing Hall of Famer, the trainer. I think he's had 20-plus years on ESPN. He is sorely missed on that ESPN broadcast because, obviously, they have redone things with the talent. And, yes, you know, we love Tim Bradley, Andre Ward, but, uh, you know, it, the missing piece is Teddy Atlas telling it like it is. And that's what we love. We love having these guys on the show that tell it like it is. We had Steve Sachs yesterday, Teddy Atlas today, not only the face of boxing, but the charitable aspect, too. And I always love to talk to him about that, about his father, Dr. Theodore Atlas, and that foundation. So just a great person. Right? And I don't know about you, but when he was talking about guys that stay too long, and, you, you know, you don't want to tell a guy when to hang it up or whatever, but I started thinking of other sports. And as, as a youngster and being such a big Willie Mays fan, I'll never forget that one picture of him begging for the call at home when he's yeah. there with his – and it's like it's so sad that a lot of younger people in that – 
and well, older now, but younger back when it first came out, obviously, that a lot of people think that was Willie Mays. And for me, he was still the most exciting, most iconic player in the game of baseball in the history of the game. So, you know, sometimes you just hope that that's not the memory. When he mentioned, you know, Muhammad Ali against Larry Holmes, I remember that fight where Holmes was basically looking at the ref going, please stop this fight. I don't want to hit him anymore. So, you know, you hope that that's not how guys go out. But unfortunately, sometimes it is. Right. All right, we come back. Scott Spritzer waiting in the wings. He's going to join us. We talk NBA, VGK, and a whole lot more coming your way right here on this Wednesday edition of T.C. Martin Show. Now, more from your favorite sports radio physician. Wow, that's the best news I heard in a dog's age. The Dr. T.C. Martin. Man, it is getting good right now, huh? We're in semifinals in the NHL playoffs. Semifinals, basically, Eastern and Western Conference finals in the NBA. And last night, we had ourselves a crazy game in game number two between the Phoenix Suns and the L.A. Clippers last night. And uh, tonight, uh, we'll get ready for the Bucks and, and the Hawks. And Scott Spritzer is in the house. Join us, Doc Sports. What's going on, my man? How you guys doing, man? Just uh, watching a little baseball to show how Otani battle on the mound and get ready for tonight's NBA. There you go. All right, Scott, let's relive what happened last night with the Suns and the Clippers game last night. This game was close throughout, low-scoring game. Phoenix pretty much in control to a certain degree. We didn't see the Clippers really you know, bolt out to a big lead or anything like that. This game was nip and tuck, which is very rare for a lot of these NBA games. And then uh, I thought Phoenix, they were going to win this game going away, and then all of a sudden the Clippers make a little run there in the end, in, in the final minute of the game. Lo and behold, here come the Clippers, and Paul George comes up big. George, jumper, got it! Paul George drills another back-to-back huge buckets. So Paul George comes up with a couple big uh, jumpers and actually gave the Clippers a lead, and the Clippers led 103-102. You had Paul George going to the free throw line to ice the game when they could have uh, been up by three, and this happened. Huge free throws here for Paul George. Missed another, and they call timeout. So at that point in time, Phoenix is going to get one more opportunity to win this game. Paul George could have iced or at least put him up by three, where Phoenix would have needed a three to tie the game and send it into overtime. But uh, instead, now Phoenix has the ball with less than a second to go, and we get this. Crowder looking, throws it, alley oh! The alley-oop from Jay Crowder to DeAndre Ayton and the Phoenix Suns get a victory there, and now they lead the series two games to none. Scott, I don't know what side you were on in that game, but, uh, man, that was uh, some pretty intense watching in the final few minutes. I think the thing that bothered me the most, I, I had the Clippers plus five, so I cashed the ticket, but the thing that really bothered me is it took 30 minutes to play the final 30 <laughs> seconds, and I'm not exaggerating. And I'm sitting there last night, you know, trying to get that Clippers play home, and, uh, you know, and I'm, I was texting, actually, a couple of other bettors who weren't involved with the NBA game. They were involved with the NHL game, maybe some baseball. And I'm like, I'm, like, I'm sitting there texting them going, I am still watching the last 30 seconds. 25 minutes later, I was still watching the last two seconds. There were something like five or six reviews. 
Even Jeff Van Gundy said this rule has got to change. You can't have this in the final 25 seconds of a playoff game, review after review. But anyway, cash the ticket with the Clippers, and I'll tell you why I was on them. If you looked at game one, you know, the Clippers lost 120 to 114. Uh, they'll be, they were without, obviously, Kawhi Leonard again. Um, but I'll tell you what, Phoenix in game one played about as well as can be expected yet they couldn't separate from L.A. They were tied at 93 early in the fourth quarter of game one. The Suns couldn't miss from the field. They couldn't miss from the free throw line. They dominated the paint. They finished with 31 assists and only seven turnovers in game one. And again, the Clippers had their chances before losing by six. So I'm looking at everything the Suns did right. They couldn't have played any better in game one, and they still won by only six points. That line comes out generally five, five and a half, came down a little bit as it got closer to game time, but I just expected the Clippers, even without Kawhi, to be able to make the adjustments that Ty Lue has been able to make all postseason off a loss and uh, gives the, the Suns all they can handle. And if not for just maybe the best pinpoint pass with a second to go in the game for that dunk, an incredible play call, uh, just a smart play call all around. Players, coaches, everybody did their job for the Suns, and they get that win almost at the buzzer. We had to wait another, what, 10 minutes for a review of that. You know, it was crazy to see where the clock was and see how much time the Clippers had left. But, yeah, that's why I was on the Clippers. And, again, it was a situation where the Suns couldn't have played any better in game one, yet they had to eke out a six-point win, so we took the points last night. Totally agree with you, Scott, with that, with that handicapping, no doubt about it, with you on, on the underdog last night. And to your point, so at the hockey game last night, and, and I'm coming back, and – so leaving T-Mobile Arena, and you know where I live, I mean, going towards Henderson, I, I, I got the whole thing in the car. Uh, I got like, you know, with traffic and everything, I got about a 25-minute drive. I was able to listen to the last minute and a half, and that's how long it took. So to your point, exactly. It was crazy listening on the radio. Yeah, it's, it's just a mess. I mean, they've got to change the rules when it comes to all these reviews. I mean, listen, I know it's all about getting it right, but come on, a half hour to play a minute? You know, it's just ridiculous. So I cannot wait until they hopefully will change the rules to where there's a certain amount of reviews that can be made or maybe review the kind of plays that are being made. I mean, why in the world did it take – what it take, TC, seven, eight minutes probably oh, yeah. to decide how much time was left yes. on the clock – after that game-winning dunk, you really need to look for seven or eight minutes to see there were .6 seconds left when he slammed it through the net. I mean, I don't know. It's, it's really hard to watch the NBA because of stuff like that. Uh, but, again, it's not hard to watch when you end up cashing the ticket, which is what we did. Well, I guess so there's a bright side to it. You have plenty of time for your in-game wagering to decide what decisions you want to make <laughs> since, since there's reviews every play. But if you are the Clippers now, after a loss like that, is it demoralizing, or do you go, okay, well, you know what? We lost the game, but uh, we get Kawhi back. We're not in that bad a situation here. We, there's no reason we can't come back and win this thing. Well, they've been in this situation before, this playoffs, and, and they're not going to get Kawhi back. You know, he's going to be out for a little while. It looks like Chris Paul is going to probably play for uh, Phoenix as he's been upgraded to probable. But, you know, again, you've just taken on the Phoenix Suns without your best player, You've played two games that you could have won. You've got to make a couple of maybe adjustments to the whole ball of wax here, and you get right back in the, in the playoffs, right back in the series, I should say. So I don't think there's any panic at all. Remember, they lost the first two games at home to the Dallas Mavericks. It's like the Clippers, like, uh, they don't really wake up until they're almost, you know, in a position where they're virtually out of a series. If you look 
at expected wins, which is something I like to look at when it comes down to this many teams left in the postseason. But it's basically how many games, given how many the team has played, would you normally expect a team with an efficiency differential that they have in the postseason to win? Well, the Clippers are 9.9, Phoenix is 9.4. Clippers have played a couple of more games so far, but still they've been expected to win almost 10, 9.9 of their games that they played thus far. They've only won eight. So it's not like this team is playing a horrible brand of basketball to be down 0-2. The one thing they've got to shore up, guys, man, the defense. I mean, if you look at the last two weeks, points allowed per 100 possessions played, the Clippers are by far the worst at 120.4. Uh, points allowed per 100 possessions played. Phoenix has given up 110, 10 points fewer. So the Clippers have got to make those adjustments on the defensive end of the court. But again, they've proven in each series thus far that they've been able to do it. And the thing about it is, you know, we got these four teams that are here, and not everybody expected us to be here with Atlanta, Milwaukee, and the Clippers and Phoenix. We don't have much defense with any of these teams. Milwaukee definitely isn't a very good uh, defensive team. We saw that with the Nets. That's probably the reason why they got eliminated last round as well, too. So it's funny. We usually see good defensive teams usually in, in, in these conference finals. We don't have that this year. Well, I, I, I understand, but at the same time, I think Milwaukee is not getting – credit for the defense they played thus far. They're the best team of – they got the best defensive efficiency record of all the NBA teams that made the playoffs and have obviously played a game uh, at 105, their defensive efficiency. Okay. If you look at what they've done the last two weeks, I just told you like Phoenix is 110.5. Their points allowed for 100 possessions played. Phoenix 110.5. Uh, you've got the Clippers at 120.4, Atlanta 108.6, Utah 130. Guess what? Milwaukee's 102.8. They're eight points better on the defensive end of the floor for 100 possessions the last two weeks than the Phoenix Suns, who seem to be beating everybody handily, you know, not handily by large point spreads, but winning these basketball games. So they have the best point differential the last two weeks, or second best, I should say, of all the teams of the final eight and now the final four in points allowed per 100 possessions and points scored. Uh, Here's something interesting, guys, about Milwaukee and Atlanta, by the way. If you take that points differential the last two weeks, points per 100 possessions, Phoenix is 11.4. They're the best overall when you throw in the offense in the mix. Milwaukee's number two at 7.2. Do you realize that the Atlanta Hawks are a negative one? Only team of the final four that has a negative point differential in points scored to points allowed per 100 possessions, and if you break down, for instance, Milwaukee's played 11 postseason games, Atlanta's played 12 postseason games, if you break it down, the metric, unexpected wins over an 82-game season of the games these two teams have played in the playoffs, Milwaukee would be a 55-game winner, 55 wins, 27 losses, Atlanta, 45 wins, 37 losses, again, by far the worst of the teams that are left, so the metrics say that Milwaukee wins going away as far as this series is concerned. Now, they've got to shoot better than they were from the deep perimeter in the first few games of the postseason. If they can get that on track, uh, then they probably win this series, I would say, in six games. 
That's Professor Scott Spicer. I feel like I'm in an algebra class or, or geometry or something like that. That's great, great stuff, Scott. Yeah, I, I, I just saw <laughs> when he said 102.8, I thought that was maybe the radio station they were on or something. But, um, but yeah, but but I guess if defense wins championships and they're the best defensive team, uh, maybe you do take a flyer on them right now. So, But, uh, yeah, so, so some definitely interesting stats there. Milwaukee. I don't always like to get into metrics, but at this right. point, where there's four teams left, guys, that's when this really this stuff really adds up for me. That's when I really start to like to use it because you've got four teams that have been good enough to all get where they are and all at the same time have played, you know, 11, 12, 13 games at this point. And then you can really use what they've done in their series thus far to kind of gauge what might happen in the upcoming series. So it gets to this point of the postseason every year when all these newfangled metrics started coming out a decade ago. That's when I like to use them. You know me, TC, Frank, from all these years we've known each other, done radio shows. I'm not a big newfangled metrics guy during the course of the regular season. It's all situational. But at this point, I really do jump in with the metrics. No, and you've adapted. I mean, some handicappers don't adapt with the times. And, and again, if you have that information, it's just like the analytics that we look at in baseball, that sort of thing. I mean, use it to your advantage. You can still have the old school approach. And, again, think about you know the, the mental side of it, the emotional side of it, and, again, you know the matchups. But, uh, again, if there's numbers out there, and especially if they support that, and, again, I mean, you're not just a numbers guy. I mean, you're going to see if the numbers support you know, what your, what your eyes are seeing as well, too. And, and to me, that's just smart handicapping. So, no, kudos to you, my friend. Yeah, and, and, well, to, me, it. It, and to me, it's just uh, it's being smart enough to add a tool to your toolbox. Yes. You didn't take the metrics yeah. and throw away the old toolbox. It's just another device that you can use, and that's what I think is the key to being successful with it. Right. Well, that's and what I try to do is I'll still look at it from the standpoint that I do all season in the postseason, especially because postseason handicapping is obviously different than regular season. But I'll look and I'll see, you know, old school capping, and then I'll use the metrics after that. And, you know, the thing I think that surprised me the most was the difference in expected wins over 82 games based on the games played so far in the postseason. And what I saw in Milwaukee was 10 games better in that metric than Atlanta. I have to admit I was a little surprised. And I felt Milwaukee is the better team. I mean, listen, the Atlanta Hawks were fortunate enough to play the poster team for offensive ineptitude when they played the New York Knicks, right? So <laughs> even though Milwaukee had their problems early on in this playoff series shooting the three-pointer, they're still better than the New York Knicks. Now, you throw all those numbers into the mix, you use old-school handicapping, you mix them together, and you're still not shocked when you come up on the wrong end of things and the Hawks win in seven. So, you know, there's little things that are going to happen along the way. The reason I think that besides all those crazy metrics and numbers and all that kind of stuff that does help out this time of year, the reason I think the Bucks get the job done is Trey Young is finally going to have to play at both ends of the floor every right. night with Drew Holiday out there at point for the Bucks. I think that's a big deal. So it's going to be interesting to see how Trey Young adjusts and plays against Drew Holiday throughout the series. And the thing about it is, it's not like Atlanta has a plan B. I mean, they can win if Trey Young is it goes for 26 to 32 points or something like that. If he doesn't, and he has a subpar shooting game, they really don't have that next go-to guy. Who is that? Clint Capella? I mean, really. I mean, they, they, really they really don't have that option. So, and, uh, so, so, let's, so you're saying that Atlanta wins if Trey hits his trays. There you go. Exactly. There you go. Exactly. All right. So this uh, line has jumped up to, to eight. I'm seeing it some places, uh, Scott, here in Milwaukee tonight. It is game one. 
Talk a little bit about the Hawks and the Bucks. The Bucks finally, it seems like maybe they've gotten over the hump. They've had some disappointments. They were talking about maybe getting rid of their coach here. Uh, you know, Giannis is healthy doing his thing. But like you said, uh, Drew Holiday, they've got other pieces. Chris Middleton, I love him as well, too. And we know Mil- Milwaukee loves to fire up the threes as well, too. I mean, they could destroy you on any given night if they are hitting a good percentage of their threes. If they're not, then, you know, we're going to have ourselves a series here. So h- how do you handicap game one? Yeah, and that's a big part of it. I mean, Milwaukee wasn't exactly being defended outstandingly by their opponent when they couldn't make their three-pointers, you know. But I think this is a spot where, you know, Atlanta really will miss DeAndre Hunter. Bogdanovich is a little banged up. He hasn't been as good late in that series, that last series, as he was earlier in the playoffs. That hurts. Uh, Maybe, maybe P.J. Tucker can step up a little bit for the Hawks because I'm still concerned if I'm a Hawks fan or better uh, that Trey Young with his defensive deficiencies is going to cost this team throughout the course of the series. As far as tonight, I like the Bucks. I did lay the points. It got as high as eight and a half. Uh, you could have laid as low as seven yesterday afternoon, I believe it was, but it has been as high as eight and a half. Uh, as far as what Mike Budenholzer has done as the head coach of this team, they've been a home jock. 115 times under Budenholzer, 115 times they've been home chalk. They've covered 58% of those games. And in those 150 ga- 115 games, they've scored 120 points per game and allowed 108. It's a team that gets the job done, man, when it comes to being home chalk. And I know it's a big price, but for all those metrics, combined with the fact that teams don't always do real well when they're off a seven-game series, I just had to go with Milwaukee, and I didn't have to lay eight and a half. I did have to lay eight, though, in this game. And listen, the Hawks have covered six of the last 24 as a road dog, and that's six and a half to 12-point line range. So, And they lose those games, by the way, by an average of 16 points per game. So jumped on Milwaukee, laid the eight. All right, we've got to get going, Scott. But real quick, uh, tomorrow night, VGK in an elimination situation. Uh, they're a road favorite. Give us some quick thoughts. Real quick thoughts, I, I hope Robin Leonard's a net uh, this third straight postseason where Marc-Andre Fleury has left something to be desired, desired between the pipes and playoffs action. Uh, maybe Stevenson being his second game, shaking off some rust, can work some life into that line. Uh, Pat's ready, a goal and two assists in the series. Mark Stone is yet to score a point. I'm going to root the heck for root the heck out of VGK. I don't know that they're going to get it done. I'm probably not going to bet the game. I'll say VGK wins three to two. VGK deserved to be a favorite here. I mean, they've been a pretty large favorite in you know all these games. Even on the road, there was uh, minus one sixty. You know. Yeah, only because they, uh, they're going to draw the majority of the bets. Yep. That's yep. it. As far as power ratings at this point, they don't deserve it. But because they're going to draw those bets, the books had to make them the favorite of a buck forty or so. Value with the Canadians, no doubt about it. All right, Scott. Appreciate you. You can check him out at DocSports.com for Scott's plays. Go check him out. He's on it. NBA, Major League Baseball, the NHL, it doesn't matter. Even Euro 2020, I'm sure. I passed at ATC, but I'm involved. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You and me both. We, when we get to the, uh, the knockout stage, the advance, that's when we get serious about this stuff, man. So there we go. Absolutely. All right, brother. Thanks, Scott. Appreciate you. Take care, guys. All right, there he is, Scott Spritzer. All right, I want to thank Teddy Atlas for joining us. Tim Bradley, former uh, combo, the trainer fighter, they both joined us today and both on the commentating side now as well, too. Miss any part of the show, go to the website, tcmartshow.com. VGK talk more tomorrow, ballpark. Yeah, and basically what it sounds like to me you're saying is in that particular series, the price hasn't been right for the VGK. This is true. <laughs> <laughs>